You are listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by Dr. Ed Stetzer, author, missiologist, and interim teaching pastor at Calvary. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here is today's message. Hi, everybody. Ed Stetzer here, and so excited to bring what's the last message for our online gathered experience. And boy, as you can see from the video, we're very thankful for our volunteers who have really uh, worked hard, our staff who's worked extra hours to make it possible for us to walk through the challenging time of the pandemic. And now, to move forward together in person. As you know, schools in New York City are in person because kids need in-person school and they're taking mitigation and proper uh, precautions and so are we. If kids need in-person school, I believe that we need in-person church. And so remember September 12th, we're gonna be having kind of a dedication Sunday for Hunter College as we continue our worship there and move to weekly worship. Also, that's Promotion Sunday, so you want to be there with your kids, with your whole family. Our full children's ministry and family ministry, our next-gen ministry are all at work. September 19th is Back to Church Sunday. Again, if kids need to be in school, people, with, you know, I, I get there might be an exception where somebody says, you know, I, I have a specific, you know, situation where I can't. But for most of us, we've kind of built into maybe the habit of watching online or watching at another time. Uh, you know, asynchronously, I want to encourage you to prioritize in-person gathering, to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We have a big room. For those of you who haven't been, we have a big room. There's lots of space to socially distance. You can mask and more. And let's prioritize that because shows are meeting, right? So shows are starting uh, that week. And so we think ultimately that the gathering of God's people to worship the King of Kings is essential for us as we walk through these next phases of life uh, together. So that being said, let's uh, let's jump into the message today, jump into the text and the message today. What we're going to be looking at today is it's time to cage the outrage. Now, I, I confess I wrote a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage, and so yes, the title was impacted by that book. It is what it is, as they say. So um, so that being said, I want to walk us through the text today, and in walking us through the text, I'm going to put it on the screen, as I walk us through the text, we're going to get a feel for one of the teachings of Jesus that's perhaps one of the more familiar teachings in culture. It's Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38 and going to verse uh, 42, 38 through 42. Let me put it on the screen and then I'll read it. It says this, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, uh, turn to them the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, so here in this passage, we're continuing the teaching of Jesus, right? Christians all deal with conflict. Um, everyone deals with conflict in this world. Um, it's interesting, if you've been following me on social media, I have uh, driven one, I preached at uh, I preached at Moody Church, and immediately after church, drove one daughter to Canada, and then came home and drove another daughter to California, stopping in Denver um, to, uh, to preach there. 
uh, while preaching at our church here online as well. So I have been in the car for with a daughter who's uh, young adults for was that eight days, and lots of you know lots of good talking times. That and one of the big things, I mean, probably the biggest lesson that I think is probably new for them, right? You know, we talked about their walk with the Lord. We talked about starting new life. We talked about finances. We we laughed about, you know, past experiences. Um, but one of the things I kept coming back to is um, you're going to have conflict with your roommate. <laughs> um, and, and it's like, of course, there's going to be conflict. Matter of fact, that's part of it. And my, my middle daughter's like horrified by that idea. She's not, she's not a big fan of conflict. And I said, but that's part of growing up. Part of growing up is to learn to deal with conflict. Well, part of growing up as a Christian is to deal with conflict differently. And on an individual basis, as a Christian, you go further than the law or your rights require. That's what we're going to talk about, right? On July 27th, 2020, a man was sentenced after pleading guilty to committing a federal crime. His punishment included 30 days in prison, six months in home confinement, and in a related civil case, he paid the person he assaulted $580,000. And... The man's name is Renee Boucher, and maybe you never heard of Renee Boucher, to be honest. Um, probably have no idea who he is. He's a retired doctor living in an upscale neighborhood in a medium-sized city in Kentucky. So what federal crime did he commit? Did he try to rob a bank? Nope. Did he try to assassinate the president? Nope. Did he confess to joining a terrorist organization? Nope. None of those things. Instead, he attacked his neighbor. And it just so happened that Boucher's neighbor, the man he attacked, is a sitting member of Congress. Renee Boucher is the next-door neighbor of Senator Rand Paul. You may remember this made big, big news at the time. What was the reason for the attack? Had Senator uh, Paul assaulted Boucher some years before? Uh, was he? Was it, a, was it a revenge act? Had Paul plotted to oust Boucher from the neighborhood by getting the Homeowners Association to kick him out? Had Paul... Voted for legislation that Boucher thought was morally reprehensible? Nope, none of these things. Actually, for 17 years, the two had an ongoing feud about how Rand Paul mowed his lawn. Sometimes Paul's uh, land lawnmower would throw grass and the grass clippings on Boucher's professionally manicured lawn, and Boucher would complain about it. In November 2017, Paul's... Uh, Paul stacked up some broken branches in a pile near Boucher's lawn and continued to mow his grass. Like Popeye, Boucher had all that he could stand and couldn't take any more of it. And out of nowhere, he blindsides Paul coming from behind, tackling him to the ground. The attack uh, fractured five of Paul's ribs and he developed pneumonia afterwards. Police were called to the scene, a private neighborhood aghast at such behavior. All this over a dispute of lawn care which leads us quite well to this morning's scripture. Because again, it starts with the idea of, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, I want to start there because um, this this morning's uh, message covers the fifth pronouncement in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, showing us truly how to understand the law from God's kingdom perspective of greater righteousness. It's a famously known passage, even among non-Christians. Phrases like, an eye for an eye, or turn the other cheek, or go the extra mile. I mean, people who've never been to church will say, let's go to the extra mile, and all made it into the common vernacular of our language. 
Now, people don't use them the way Jesus used them, and often people aren't aware they're even Jesus' teachings. But this passage is a wonderful reminder that God's truth has invaded our culture even when people don't realize it. And you and I can use the phrases to lead people to Jesus, right? Say, well, if someone says, go the extra mile, I say, you know who said that? You know the context in which he said that? That's Jesus calling us to live a different way. I always want to tie in an evangelism thing. I'm passionate about evangelism. So if people often use phrases innocently, or maybe even incorrectly, how are we going to understand the phrases? We're going to examine these verses individually, but the overarching theme might be described this way. Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42, develops the principle that God's people are called to engage the world in a higher standard of living, to forgive constantly, to love extraordinarily, and to live like Jesus lived. So that being said, there are three things I want us to look at today. Three things that I want us to look at today, right? Uh, The first is the law given by Moses. And I want you to not miss uh, this particular part of the phrase, because it's really important that we understand what's going on, because this is a good law. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, this is actually from Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. But when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit shall surely be fined, as a woman husband's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, I'm going to explain because this is this is a good and appropriate law that Christians are called to go above and beyond. Look at Leviticus uh, 24, verses 17 through 22. Uh, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal life shall make a good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, what he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, uh, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. By the way, pretty stunning, actually, that last sentence. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So this is a just law given by God in Old Testament times that Christians are called to live beyond. There's a lot of questions people would have around here. Like, well, what do you think about the death penalty? This is not actually, let's let's address what these verses are addressing. And that's other places people would have that discussion. Or, But but here's the thing I want you to see, right? Christians deal with conflict differently because of Christ, right? And on an individual basis, as a Christian, you go further than the law or your rights require. So Jesus is quoting, remember, directly from this Old Testament passage here in Exodus. An eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth. Now, this teaches a concept called lex talionis. Uh, now, now, what is that, uh, lex talionis? Um, it's, it's a Latin for the law of revenge. And we hear phrases like law of revenge. Our minds sometimes conclude that's a bad thing, but I think it's the exact opposite. God gave this law to keep people from escalating feuds between themselves. Without this law, persons would have every reason to take matters into their own hands, and people at their core can have wicked intent. So without lex talionis, 
when you egg my house, I mean, just think in terms, I've had my house egged, right? So teenagers, right? So someone egg my house. When you egg my house, then I can throw a brick in your window, which leads you to douse my house in gasoline and catch it on fire, which leads me to shoot you. So I committed murder because you threw an egg on my house. I mean, this is, we see this all the time in road rage, right? We see the escalation of road rage and it'll make the national news. Somebody's killed. But with Lex Talionis, all I'm allowed to do is to egg your house back. It stops the escalation of violence against one another. In the Old Testament times, this was shocking because, I mean, we even think about this. Think of the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? That's a real story where the feud just keeps escalating, escalating. Excellent. The human heart, if it's got wickedness in it, it just doesn't stop at justice. It wants to escalate, to, to destroy or and more. You know, we see this all the time. I read a story about a man who installed a Wi-Fi-enabled thermostat in their house in Ohio. Not long after his wife divorced him, she and her new boyfriend moved into the house. So the man just took pleasure to turning the thermostat to 40 degrees in the winter and 85 in the summer. All the while, she's unsuspecting of why her home temperature fluctuates so much. People want revenge. They want, they want to um, prove or, or escalate, right? I heard of a couple that were dating, and the woman found out the man was cheating on her. Instead of breaking up right away, she convinced him to get matching tattoos. He got his tattoo first, and then she got up and left. Right? We all know these stories, right? These kinds of stories prove without question that we want to have escalating revenge there's an entire category of revenge movies, you know, Clint Eastwood's old, you know, Western, the out, you know, old Clint Eastwood's movies, or or the outlaw Josie Wales, or John Tucker Must Die. You know, these these are all revenge kind of ideas. But God is not like us, and in His wisdom, God set up a law that provided boundaries. If X happens to you, you do not have the authority to do Z. You're only allowed to do X in return. Now, our legal system is different. And this, you got to remember, this was a long, long time ago. And this was in and of itself to control escalation. So justice, not escalating revenge, is precisely what God intends with lex talionis. We see it again in that verse, almost word for word, in Leviticus, right? Uh, and it, it says, it says and, and, and it even applies, this is always interesting, very much outside of the way it would have been millennia ago, the last sentence, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. This law applies to everyone. So um, this passage is great because not only does it reinforce what we read in Exodus 21, but it makes explicit that this was the law for God's people, both the native and the sojourner. There were not different rules for different people, which is shocking news. So the fact that you couldn't escalate revenge and the laws were the same for everybody is kind of a big deal, right, uh, millennia ago. Because whether you're a native or a sojourner, Protestant or Catholic, an American or Russian, we all have sinful hearts. And this law, that it's best to rein in our desire for escalating revenge. Escalating revenge is not loving. Jesus calls us to a higher love and to a greater righteousness. And the law keeps you from escalating. Nobody right? Nobody can resist that unless there's, I mean, it's just part of our human nature. And yet Christians deal with conflict differently because of Christ. And this is where I keep coming back to on an individual basis. As a Christian, you, uh, as a Christian, you go further than the law or your rights require, which leads us to number two. So the two, number two on the list is the true meaning of the law explained by Jesus. Don't exact retribution. 
Remember, number one was the law given by Moses, equitable retaliation. Number two, the true meaning explained by Jesus, don't exact retribution. He says this, but I tell you, do not resist the one who's evil. Lots of questions will come in here, so stay with me, right? Remember that um, we're looking at one passage, which is not the totality of what the Bible teaches about something, but it is essential for us to understand what Jesus is teaching and what the Bible is saying. So what does it mean? Because uh, we know to stand up against evil, right? In Acts 22, it, it, you know, is it legal for you to do this? Am I a Roman citizen who is not yet condemned, right? He, he appeals to uh, his rights, stands up against evil. doesn't mean you don't defend your family. First Timothy 5.8 says, speaks about a man providing for his own. Uh, he denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. Doesn't mean you don't resist evil, right? Proverbs 25, 26, like a middle spring is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked, right? You don't want to be that. You want to be the one. So, so what's going on here when it says, do not resist the one who is evil? Okay, on an individual basis, as a Christian, you go further than the law or your rights require. We can turn the other cheek, but someone will still could still go to jail. Okay, don't you miss that. We can turn the other cheek. That's individual but someone can still go to jail. What we see in the first half of this verse is what we've seen over the past weeks studying this section on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not overturning or invalidating the law. In fact, just to remind you, he says the exact opposite. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to uh, fulfill them, right? So, but to fulfill them. And truly I say, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all of it's accomplished, okay? So, so we, we know that what Jesus is telling us is not a repeal or an invalidation of the law. So what Jesus is saying, so what is Jesus saying in verse 39? He said, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person, does not abolish the law, but actually fulfills it. How so? Okay, remember all along, when we're talking about God's kingdom, being a radical kingdom, not of this world, but a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of behavior. Just as God permitted divorce, but did not approve of it, God permits justice, but Jesus teaches us that foregoing our right to justice is sometimes the greater righteousness for God's kingdom. So Jesus switches grammatically to the second person, right? I'm going to show you. Um, but I tell you... He addresses the disciples in their personal interactions with others. He's not calling for invalidating civil law or criminal law courts. He's addressing how his followers are supposed to act. So Jesus' words here go far beyond exacting retribution or even justice. Right? His call is that his followers avoid even resistance. It's quite difficult to hear, especially with American ears, especially for people who have a Bill of Rights, who've grown up with certain inalienable rights, who know they are entitled to certain legal privileges. But Jesus, and to a Jesus follower, must see him or herself as a disciple of Jesus first and an American second. Uh, whatever rights we are afforded by the Constitution and Bill of Rights must fall under the lordship of Jesus, right? Must fall under the lordship of Jesus. So Jesus is telling his followers not to resist even when an evil person is trying to get the better of his disciples. So if your neighbor piles up branches and blows grass in your yard, instead of attacking him, you might let it go. When the guy behind you tailgates you and you want to teach him a lesson, I feel this, I feel this, don't slam on your brakes and teach him a lesson. When your coworker disparages you to your superior, Jesus' teaching is that you let it go. Don't seek to bring revenge and escalate revenge. So before we move on 
to the applications for the teaching Jesus gives, let me take a minute and talk about what this text does not mean. It does not mean that we resist that. It does not mean that we resist an evil person when that person is taking advantage. Um, it does not mean that we do not double negative. So we should resist an evil person that's taking advantage of the people. It does not mean we look the other way when we know um, some crime is being committed. Um, we know that uh, abusers uh, target churches. Right. That 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 we have to protect the the. The, the, the young, the innocent, the least of these. It does not mean we don't confront evil when we see people trafficked, right? This, the scriptures are very clear, and there's hundreds of verses, and we want to take the totality. One of the things when we go through, Jesus makes very strong statements for his disciples and the way that they live, and we have to remember that all the Bible is equally inspired. The scriptures are very clear. We are to advocate those who are in need. Christians are to speak up when injustice affects others, but Jesus is clear that it pertains to you, as it pertains to you, don't chase after escalating revenge, but also, too, sometimes it's a sense to let things go, right? Um, letting, let God be the judge. Let God uh, be the judge. Um, and so, um, and it's interesting. I think, I think this will help us. A right cheek says, um, it says, you know, turn the cheek. We're going to get that in a minute. A right cheek, right cheek, is in a right-handed world, is an insult, not an assault. It's important to say that, right? So, um, and I, I know we don't do that today, but if you watch the old movies where someone takes off a glove and, you know, I challenge you to a duel, and they'll take the glove and slap the person across the face, it actually hits the right cheek, right? So if you were throwing a punch in a right-handed world, I know some of you are left-handed, to my daughters, am I, or left-handed, but in a, but th that's not the way they thought then. In a right-handed world, it would be a punch to the right, punch to the left, but it's a, it's an insult, right? So Jesus told us to throw them out, we would be insulted, right? I mean, very clearly he says in Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, right? So, with just the with the with the face slapping thing, right? It's not pacifism. Um, if someone assaults you, call the police, right? So, um, but you don't escalate it. Not pacifism, but non-participation in insults and a de-escalation of conflicts, right? So, um, again, we don't, we don't physically touch each other in the ways people would do so uh, centuries ago. They would, you know, in the Middle Ages, you know, <clears throat> you know, they they would. I challenge you to a duel. Um, you know, I put on a little bit of an accent there, didn't I? Sorry. Um, I think from too many movies. But um, but it's not pacifism here. Other people might be pacifists and they might draw that from other passages. I'm, I, don't, I don't come to that conclusion. But, but here it's not pacifism, but non-participation in insults and a de-escalation of conflicts. Lawn, neighbors, right? Slap in the face. It might seem like a slap in the face. Pile no sticks there. De-escalate it. You know, I, we had a neighbor that we had to deal with this. We had a neighbor in Tennessee who really didn't like my kids. Who doesn't like my kids? And they didn't like my kids because they got on the lawn all the time. And I'm like, hey, you listen, my kids are on your lawn. Your lawn is blessed. You have a privilege to get to my lawn. And the problem is our house was right here and their house was here and the common area is over there. It's like right cut through. And oh, every time they would yell at my kids and the, if the ball would go over in their yard, my kids were smaller, my kids were little, they would actually keep the ball. And it's like, what in the world? Um, anyway. It was, so what we had to do at this point was really make it, my kids were like, well, we're just going to stomp across their lawn more. And I, this is a perfect example. I said, you know, I get it, but let's go ahead instead, try to minister to them. Why are they so angry? I don't know. Let's try to minister to them, figure it out and help build a relationship with them. We de-escalated that 
conflict, right? And these are the kind of conflicts we see at work, kind of conflicts we see on the road uh, every day. It's not an irregular thing. Remember that Jesus is calling us to a higher standard, a more righteous way of living. This is not everything the Bible teaches on the subject, but it is important for us to grab a hold of it. So it leads to number three on our outline, which is the practical application for our lives. Exemplify a redeemed life. Exemplify a redeemed life. Okay, so what does that mean and how do we do that? So remember where we are um, in the outline. It says, the law given by Moses, equitable retaliation. The true meaning explained by Jesus, don't exact retribution. And number three, the practical application for our lives, exemplify, exemplify. So equitable retaliation, and then explained by Jesus, don't exact retribution. And then finally, exemplify a redeemed life. So this passage concludes with some pretty challenging applications, right? So we're going to look at them. Keeping in mind that Jesus uses strong word pictures, right? Each addresses a different situation where Jesus' followers demonstrate sacrificial love over personal rights. Let's look. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, it's very easy to walk through a text like this and say, well, that's not quite what it means. Well, and that's not what I want to do. I mean, these are radical calls to the kind of life that sacrifices one's rights. So before answering these four applications, let me clearly state that these are time and location specific. Jesus is giving examples that made sense in the context of first century Jewish culture, where honor and shame are the ruling social structures of the day, where Roman soldiers occupy your cities and oversee your government. They are not one-to-one. -one. There are not one-to-one -one correlations between his experience and ours. There are applications, but there are some principles that I believe translate even into our life today. I want to highlight them this morning, right? So let's take a look. First, when it comes to turn the other cheek, I sort of address that a little bit. Um, here's the thing. Jesus talks about turning the other cheek after a person has already been slapped on the right cheek. Again, most people would be right-handed, so to slap someone in the right cheek with your right hand would be a backhand to backhand them, a backhanded slap. What Jesus is talking about here is, is probably not full violence, right? It's not Rocky, Rocky Balboa to Apollo Creed. Um, it's not, it may not even be slapping somebody with uh, an open hand, right? It's, it's a backhand slap is a slap of dishonor, a slap of reproof. It's a shameful slap in a culture that avoided social shame as much as possible. Instead of taking a posture of defense or a posture of escalating revenge, instead of Jesus telling his disciples to be ready to slap back, he tells him to turn the other cheek and be ready to accept another insulting slap. Um, and I, I think this is really key. So it's Jesus' disciples are to be so confident in Christ, they don't need to retaliate. Um, they, 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 they're actually putting themselves into, you know, here it is. I mean, you, I, you, I'm vulnerable again um, because in it I can serve the person who is seeking to escalate, de-escalating, and I'm serving them by de-escalating the conflict. And then it says sued for his inner garment. Second example Jesus gives shifts to a courtroom setting. Uh, garments of the day, we don't do this the same way. Garments of these day included three primary items, uh, a loincloth, an inner lay of clothing, and an outer coat. In verse 40, um, we see the picture of the disciple being sued for his inner garment. Maybe he owed a debt and the offended party was seeking to re 
recoup the money owed by um, possessing the disciples' inner garment. Jesus says the disciples should not only hand over their inner garment, but give their outer garment as well. Shocking. Because Jewish law actually forbade the taking of the outer garment. You could sue for the tunic, but you could never sue for the coat because the coat was the layer of warmth to protect from the cold. So again, we don't hear that when it says sued for his inner garment and then, oh, give him the outer as well. But the people then would have heard him and, whoa, wait a second. Think of taking a sleeping bag from a person who sleeps on the street. That's his protection, maybe his dignity. Jesus tells us to give that up voluntarily. Jesus continues to teach us not to resist evil people. They bring offense against his disciples. Don't be a stumbling block. The world fights back. Jesus' disciples give willingly, which leads us to go the second mile. Go the second mile. The third illustration is probably the most familiar phrase in our language from Jesus' words, Maybe, except other maybe judge not, but also the least understood from a cultural setting. In Jesus' day, Jews were under the rulership of the Romans. Pagan Gentiles lorded their authority over God's people. So since there were no cars or trains, Roman soldiers had to carry their equipment wherever they went. Part of Roman law was that a soldier could force a subjected person to carry his bags for a mile. So come over here, put a backpack on him and say, carry this for a mile. Uh, so they're occupying Israel, oppressing God's people, telling a Jew to carry his things for him, his bag, his spear, his water jug, whatever else he demands. And these are the precise items used to keep Israel under Roman rule. So it's like carrying a sword and his water, but they're using this to oppress us. The Jews are required to carry them. And Jesus says that the law requires one mile of service. His followers should go an extra mile. Now, in the grand scheme of the first century, walking one mile wasn't much when it's the only mode of transportation was walking. It might seem like a lot to us today. But people were definitely in better shape back then. But if you're a businessman in the market selling your produce and a soldier makes you carry things for a mile and you happen to see, uh, you happen to be a Jesus follower, you go two miles, you walk two miles in the service of your oppressor and have two miles to get back to your cart or your stand. You've missed business interactions, um, transactions, because you've walked the extra two miles, a mile extra and then an extra mile back. That's hard for us, I think, to comprehend. We never lived, most of us never lived in an oppressed land. We never had soldiers tell us what to do. We've never wished we could overthrow invaders. This is precisely what Jesus' disciples wanted to do. Well, one, at least one of them did. Remember Simon the Zealot? Zealots were a paramilitary group within Israel who existed for the purpose of seeking to overthrow Rome. So Jesus Jesus tells his followers, at least, at least one of whom is a zealot, that service in his kingdom, the greater righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, includes going above and beyond even what your enemies expect from you. So if your godless boss dumps a project on you on Friday afternoon and says it's due on the desk by Monday morning, maybe the application is don't mumble under your breath, curse all weekend, serve that boss by having it to the boss early or giving him more than he asked. Jesus' followers do not obtain our worth by the way the world views us. So let's honor our king and serve him by serving even those who don't have our best intention in mind. Now it gets to the next thing is giving to those who ask. Now this is, of course, a major question in New York City, right? How are we to function this way in this passage? Well, let's let's look at the passage more closely to get a feel for it. Because the first example, fourth example speaks of giving to those who ask. This is no surprise. The Old Testament is replete with examples of how God's children are to give to the poor. Jesus reminds his listeners they are to be generous towards others. But I think Jesus is doing something more here. He's going beyond calling followers to give to the poor. 
See, the context here is how we are not to resist evil people. In this setting, likely Jesus is referring to the person who asked for something, but you have every reason to believe they won't pay you back or return it to them. Give anyway. Don't turn them away. Now, simply from an economic standpoint, I don't think we should take um, take every money, all the money we have, and just give it to everyone who asks, right? If I walk down uh, a street in Brooklyn, uh, if I'm in if I'm in Hoboken, if I'm in Newark, if I'm in the countless places where we have family members, if I'm if I'm if I'm in if if I'm out in Floral Park, whatever it may be, um, if I said yes to every one of them, in no time my bank account would be empty and I couldn't pay my mortgage, and Donna would slap me on the right cheek for sending us to the poorhouse. But there's a balance between giving away everything, uh, becoming a monk, you know, taking a vow of poverty, which you know some have done that. Which, uh, but, it's, it's, but the difference between being stingy and never helping others. Jesus says to give to those who ask and expect nothing in return. So um, what does that mean? So it's hard to loan a skill saw when you know your neighbor won't return it, right? It's difficult to loan your deadbeat brother-in-law $2,000 because he gambled away his paycheck and doesn't have the money to pay his bills. But Jesus says to give to those who ask. Your possessions are not more valuable than people. Let me say that again. Your possessions, your money, your car, your house, your clothes, your time, none of those are more important than people. So Jesus is using strong language. He came to die for people, so we're not surprised by it. He came to seek and save the lost. And by serving others through the giving of your dignity, your clothes, your time, or your money, then do it. And what we've seen today that Jesus has called us to do is to lay down our personal right to justice. So if someone wrongs us, then for the sake of Jesus, um, let it go. Now, um, so how do we apply all that? Okay, so um, for, let's let's talk in terms of panhandling, right? Uh, let me, and again, I'm putting this on the video at Calvary, where not all these people around the world watch it, but I have a, I have a simple thing. Um, whenever, when I was starting my first church, I would go to people and ask them to support me, and pretty much everyone told me no. I was 20 years old, raising funds, 21 when we moved to Buffalo to plant a church among the urban poor, uh, raised just enough to rent an apartment, had to work as a contractor. And so I have a... Uh, a specific way that I apply this passage is that anytime a church planner or a missionary asks me to support, I find a way to support them at some level. You say, well, Ed, how's that? Is that this, well, how's this apply to panhandling? Well, that's, that for me is one of the ways that I want to consistently give to those who are engaging in God's work and God's ministry. Now, different levels, right? But I, I, I always say yes when somebody asks if they're going to plant a church or be a missionary. Um, how then do I handle with panhandlers? Well, here's what I have tried to do. You, we can partner with with, uh, with city missions, uh, partner with Bowery Mission. All, we have lots of ways to partner where we can give, though not something that's going to lead to continued abuse of uh, substance abuse or, or 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 not getting mental health help or more. And there are ways to do that. To 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 and and people kind of have different ways that they'll they'll function on their conscience. Some might say, "Well, I'll I'll be happy to buy you a sandwich." Or I'd be happy to. Here's something. Uh, here's a here's a token. Some of the missions will give a token, and you can redeem this at the mission, where hopefully there can be some intentional intervention around substances, mental health, or more. Not everybody who's homeless is, but disproportionately so. So okay, but this doesn't answer every question, right? The Jesus um, big picture is: if someone wrongs us for the sake of Jesus, uh, let it go. Now it doesn't mean it's legal. It's personally right. It could be legal, right? We have legal rights as U.S. citizens, but kingdom citizens. Jesus says to forego those rights to move past what we're owed and give up those rights in an effort to serve others. We've seen that. I mentioned a few weeks ago the shooting at Mother Emanuel um, where the people came and testified and said, you know, to the shooter, I forgive you 
But that didn't end the legal consequence. And it bears repeating, right? Um, I'm not saying Jesus is not telling us to report child abuse or spousal abuse or anything of that sort. When you see vulnerable people being taken advantage of, make sure you do whatever you need to to change and intervene in that situation. But I think it's more about the need to constantly make a point. When I was young, I had to make a point about everything. I was like, no, I've got to make my point. I'm right here. You're not right. And what I would say to you is, is there's a great passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. Maybe it's my New York upbringing, right? I always got to, and why not instead suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And I think ultimately the passage here points us to even 1 Peter chapter 1. For this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Uh, neither was he deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So let me close with this. I went a little long today. But this is, it's a complex passage. And let me just say this. It is not everything the Bible teaches on justice, on legal questions. It is adopting a posture in our personal interactions to de-escalate, to seek to forgive, to go the extra distance. I want to say extra mile, but then I'm just saying what's in the text, right? And, and so it's a way of Jesus living. Now, um, for me, there's some ways I specifically apply that into my life. That might be something you find helpful as well. But at the end of the day, what we need to hear is, is that people, women and men, want to escalate revenge. And Jesus calls us to a righteousness, a better way, personally, as kingdom citizens, the Lutherans would talk about how there are two kingdoms, and those two kingdoms, one kingdom is the kingdom that is uh, the kingdoms of the world and the law. But on an individual basis, as a Christian, you go further than the law or your rights require. I'm super excited about being a person next week, and I want you to make sure that you start bringing your friends. Um, remind them that if kids need in-person school, we need in-person church. We're following careful protocols. You know that. If you've come, if you haven't come, you'll see that. we got a big room to spread out in. Shows are meeting. Schools are meeting. And if uh, probably for a lot of us, we're going to some of those play. We're going to the grocery store. We're going to meet people. We're hanging. Let's make sure that in the midst of that, as Kingdom Citizens, we prioritize church. Just as here we're talking about on an individual basis, as a Christian, you go further than the law or your rights require. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. And we pray that you might guide us to live these passages out. Hard teaching sometimes from Jesus. Help us to live them out in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.